This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, it's Madam Adams, Cindy Adams, the New York Post's Cindy Adams. You can read me, and if you don't, you'd better, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Usually I do sort of smart-ass kind of dialogue, but today is Mother's Day, and on Mother's Day, I get a bit teary. So you have to allow me. I'm going to talk about mothers. I'm a mother lover. Every Mother's Day, I print a tribute to my mom because never did I ever love any creature, big or small, man or woman, old or young, the way I loved my mother. And not in this life or in the many, Shirley MacLaine, who always sees the future, and I may pass through, never will I love anyone more. My grandmother came over from the old country, Russia. She was a janitress in the new world. My grandmother cleaned stoops. She took in borders. Her husband, who never made much of a living, was a tailor. They had five children. My mother, Jessica the baby, was born in Liverpool on their way to the United States. My mother married a dentist, but she didn't like anything about him, including his teeth, and she divorced him shortly after I was born. Mom became an executive secretary. She was also a single parent. You know what I remember back those thousands of years ago? Most that I was sickly, and no matter what, my mother was always there. Didn't matter that she was working. She was always there. My mother pawned things because we needed things and we didn't have any money. She subsequently married a very dear man who was insurance and who loved me and her. And mostly I remember that she and he was always there for me. My mother was beautiful. I was not. My mother had my nose fixed. She improved my hairline. My mother put me on a diet. She fed me little green theosol tablets religiously because I was always anemic and sickly. She gave me speech and posture and acting lessons, not because she thought I might become something but because she was determined I would never stay nothing. I remember she took me to a modeling agent one day, and she said to them, My daughter is going to become somebody. Very underwhelmed, they said, Maybe, but not here. I remember. I remember I'll never forget. At a Women in Communication Matrix Awards luncheon, I told a story never told before. I was eight years old. My class was doing a maypole dance in the park. It was May 1. Each of us in turn bobbed and weaved over and under weaving our streamers into the maypole. It was a chilly morning. With all the children there, 
only my mother alone came bearing me a sweater. I was mortified. Was I not a grown-up? I was eight. No other mothers were babying their children. I hissed at this woman, Go away. She blinked at me. She went away. But there were tears in her eyes. Again, remember, this happened when I was eight, and I can still not forget it, despite the fact it was civilizations ago. I still now cannot wipe that image from my mind, and tears come as I think about it. Every year, people ask me to reprise my original Mother's Day Valentine. This week brought three more requests. This is the part that I think they want. I cannot believe my mother is gone. Even in my heart, the word stays capitalized. Even when my mother lay unfocused, unable to speak, in the hospital bed, in the country home I provided for her, she was in my life. There were those years upon years when she didn't know who I was. I knew who she was. I knew that somewhere inside that shell was the stunning, bright, sassy, verbal, dynamic killer lady who had forever been my everything, the core of my being. The last time I hugged her, an icy stab of fear sliced through me. I sensed an increased fragility. I wanted to crawl into that bed alongside her, but there was no way, no room. Besides, I was terrified I'd frighten her, or worse, the bed might collapse. And so, for years, I pressed right up close, my body flat up against the sidebars. All I could do was stroke that small head and place against the cold steel bars of the hospital bed a stuffed teddy bear so those curled hands might touch something soft. I remember today that gorgeous head when it was full of information when it ruled worlds, when it was big and strong and knowledgeable and featured that powerful mane of thick red hair. It seemed tiny in her last years, the hair white, sparse, shiny. Look, I was an only child. I married in my teens. So we were four. After this, my dad, the insurance man, went, and then we were three. 
next my husband, and then we were two, and now I'm one. It's tough. It's tough to lose your mother. It is now many, many years since I lost my mother. It's still tough. I give up everything to give her a gentle, easy, slow-moving hug today. One that wouldn't frighten her. One that couldn't be returned or even understood. As I've said, and I'm coming to an end of this, each Mother's Day, for whatever reasons there are, wide gaps between many a mother and child exist in many a family. It is not for me to sit in judgment. It's just that if it's within your ability, call. Tell your mother you love her. I wish I could. I can't anymore. We are now going to go to a station break so I can wipe my eyes and then come back to you on WABC Radio. Thank you for listening this far. I'll be back in one moment. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Okay, here I am, Madam Adams. I'm about to speak to Ellen Burston. She's on several projects, which she'll tell us about. She is president of the Actors Studio. She has more awards than a SEAL commander. She's been Best Actress 1975, 1974, 2001, 1972, 1981, 1979, Emmys, Tonys, Triple, triple <laughs> Awards, every other bloody thing there is. Tell me, what are you doing at this moment? Uh, right now, I have a running part on Law & Order, uh, the one that Chris Maloney's doing, Organized Crime. And I play his mother. I had played his mother when he was still on the special victims unit. And when he got his own show, they asked me if I wanted to um, to do it. And I did. I had won an Emmy for the uh, when I first did it, playing his mother. And I love him. He's a wonderful actor and a wonderful man. So I really like working with him. So I'm working on that and enjoying it very much. We're just this coming week going to be shooting the final show of this season. But you're doing a great many projects. You're doing, there's something that's coming on 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 TV now, isn't there? What is it? It's called First Ladies. Yeah. Um, And it's, I play Franklin Roosevelt's mother um, or (laughs) Eleanor Roosevelt's mother-in-law. Um. And that's a really interesting show. It's, you know, I'm sure you've heard about Mich- uh, Michelle Obama being played by Viola Davis. Yeah. Um, and Susan Ford being played by Michelle Pfeiffer. And, of course, the wonderful Gillian Anderson is playing Eleanor Roosevelt. And I loved working with her. She's a wonderful actress. So tell, that's, tell me about that. Tell me about the role. What is What is it like playing her? Um, well, 
um, playing Sarah Roosevelt, you know, she was a, a grand dame in a way, uh, yeah. a, a New England woman, and uh, had her own ideas about how things ought to be done, um, and didn't necessarily agree with Eleanor's point of view. So they had a, you know, kind of cool air between them sometimes. Uh, and, you know, it's a, a mother-in-law is a hard role to play <laughs> in life as well as. Okay. Um, yeah. And um, so it's a very interesting show about the first ladies and they've interwoven the stories together. Um, so it jumps around in time. I said, I said, Susan Ford, Michelle Pfeiffer's playing Betty Ford. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I know. I know, I know, I know, I so, know. It's on, uh, on Showtime. Yeah, I was trying to think. It's on Showtime. What did you reveal? What was revealed about Sarah Roosevelt? She was a very tough lady. Yeah, she was a tough lady, but also uh, Eleanor lost her mother when she was very young, when she was a child. So she never really had a mother-daughter relationship. And when she got involved with Franklin, um, Sarah really mothered her in many ways. I mean, she was not a, I would say she wasn't a tough mother, but she, you know, she was a woman who, who knew how things should be done. And Eleanor didn't, you know, she didn't, she didn't know about place settings at the table um, or the, you know, the, the finer ways of living. So it was what really did, a What happened to you for, what did they do for makeup? What did you have to change? Hair? Well, whatever. The, we, yeah, we uh, wore wigs. I mean, it covers quite a bit of time. So I, I start out younger. Um, in a dark-haired wig, and then, you know, it grows gradually, gets gray, and and then white. Um, and the costumes are wonderful, but you know, of the period. Um, what? A, yeah. What was? She, but she was sort of a glamorous lady. I mean, she she wore jewels and things, as I recall. Uh, she wore uh, pearls, actually, mostly. Um, she was a New England lady, you know, she was, grew up with money, but I wouldn't say she was uh, uh, glamorous. I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe her that way. She was more ladylike um, okay. and okay. educated and smart you, uh, you, and con- very conventional. You are running the Actors Studio in the old days, a, a thousand years ago, I did a life story book of him, and I was always at the actor's studio. Not that I had any ability. I didn't. But has the Strasbourg method kept its importance? Is it still in operation today? Oh, absolutely. Um you know, the method is based on uh, what Stanislavski called the system. And he once wrote, um, I didn't invent the system. I simply wrote down what all good actors do. And I would say that's still true, that the, the, the things that I learned to do um, in studying the Strasbourg, I still do. 
and and developed. And I don't think there is a style that is method style. And anybody who who calls method acting a, a type of acting is ill informed because it's just really a or as Lee said, a system to train the imagination to respond to imaginary circumstances uh, or imaginary stimuli. And that's, that's what it is, so that, that we have a trained imagination so that we can believe in what we're doing. So th- okay, that's but not acting, in our- Acting has changed today, it seems to me. The actors are saying different things different ways, and now everything is shoot 'em up and action. It's not as much emotion. I may be wrong, and I probably am. But what do you say about that? It hasn't changed. Um, well, the, that's the the writing, then, isn't it? That's yeah, the story. I guess. Um, you know, I'm talking about. Um, the kind of work that requires fine acting. I'm not talking about shoot up. What what they do, I I don't know because I don't do that kind of work. But but has it not changed in any way? I mean, are they not acting less than they used to? I have the feeling that they are, but I probably don't even know what I'm talking about. I just think that actors <laughs> are acting less, but I guess they're not. I guess they're not. Are we producing well, great actors today at the studio? Oh, absolutely. Um, Bradley Cooper, for instance, um, is a member of the studio, and he graduated from our uh, master's degree program at Pace. You know, Chris Maloney that I'm working with on Law & Order is an example. He is a really fine actor, and he comes from the stage, and he's he's working at the finest and deepest level all the time. Now, there's somebody that's in a, you know, you could call it a cop show. He's playing a a policeman. But I tell you, looking into his eyes when I'm working with him, that man is, he really knows how to work. And, you know, I don't know that he would ever call himself a method actor, but I I don't know that anybody needs to call themselves a method actor. It's just, you know, it's what you do when you really train yourself to um, be able to play the full gamut of human conditions and emotions and, and depth. It was very difficult watching, watching kids trying to learn when I was watching in the actor's studio, watching Lee Strasberg, because he was tough. He was really tough. Uh, are you as... Tough? You're not as tough as as Strasberg was. You're nicer. No, uh, I'm not as tough as he as he was. I have a different style, um, but I I hope because I'm trained by him that I know how to speak on a deep level to actors, so that I'm addressing their not just what they do in the scene. Uh, on that particular day, but what their process is, how they go about approaching a role and how effective that is. That's what I address. And that's what I learned from Lee. Of course, nobody will ever be Strasburg again. He was, he was a genius. 
What did you do during the pandemic? How did you survive like the rest of us? It wasn't easy. Were you home? Did you go out and work? What? Um, I did all of that. I was home a lot. And I went up to Mount Tremper to stay with some friends who have a house up there. Um, somebody also donated their um, condo to me on the Long Island Sound. So I stayed there for a month. Um, I stayed out of the city at the beginning of it when it first hit. But then I came back and I spent a lot of time alone, which is very interesting, and really experienced what it means to us to be out of touch with each other. You know, I, oh my I was God. reading, that, you know, I don't know if you read that wonderful book, Sapiens, but in there he says that we're next to chimpanzees. Uh, in evolutionarily, yes. and they're you know, creatures who live in groups, and that's part of our nature um, to community. And when I was isolated, I could really feel that. I, I said that I felt my inner chimpanzee crying. Um, so I would <laughs> go out to the park, spend time out in the park with you know watch strangers playing ball with each other. Um, just to not be spending so much time alone. It was pretty isolating. But do you keep any treasures from now? Do you do do you keep do I, any treasures from all your movies? Um a couple of things. Yeah. I have a couple like, of things. Like what? Like I, what? Well I just happened to notice that I I went through um the exorcist wearing a horseshoe bracelet. I, I like the idea of her having a good luck charm on as though that could help <laughs> in the situation yeah, she okay. was in. Yeah. So I had that. Um, and I saved that. What else? Do you know where you keep all your trophies and awards? Some people keep yeah. them in the bathroom, actually. I, I have an office in home in my apartment in New York, and I keep all of my awards there on the bookshelf. Books and um, books about the theater and so forth. They're lined Ellen, up. Ellen, one of the people that you have been working with over many years was Alec Baldwin. Have you spoken to him recently? Um, I have. He's not uh, communicating a lot. You know, he's spending time with his family. And, um, you know, when I first wrote to him, his answer was so hard on the wife and kids. And, you know, he's a real family man, and that's what he's involved in right now. And I just let him know that we're there for him and care for him and love him and uh, welcome him back to the studio whenever he wants to come. But I think he's got his hands full now with his family. Okay. I want to thank you for talking to me, Ellen. I haven't seen you in a while, and we all think you're so terrific. We love you. We're going to watch you on television, honey. Okay. Thank you so much, Cindy. Nice talking to you. Bye, sweetie. Bye-bye. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I'm about to speak to Charles Cohen. 
He started life as a real estate developer in New York. He is now a worldwide film producer and developer and distributor, and the guy owns everything but the popcorn. His new movie is Colin Firth in Operation Mincemeat. I now give you Charles Cohen. Okay, Charles, Charles, I have just given you the world's greatest interview. You are one of the world's greatest people all of a sudden doing movies. Tell me now about this fabulous movie that you screened last night. It was fabulous. Tell me about it. Well, Operation Mincemeat is a is a true story, and uh, it had been uh, brought to the screen uh, several years ago, several decades ago, but it wasn't the actual true story because until the late 90s, the British government had kept the actual um, intelligent files uh, secret. And uh, when those files were uh, uh, revealed to the public or available to the public, uh, the, the author, Ben McIntyre, um, uh, thought that this was a fascinating subject for the, to expose how this uh, very unusual and uh, creative deception um, which actually saved tens of thousands of lives, and some have uh, uh, some have have said that it actually changed the course of uh, World War II and the uh, and hastened the uh, hastened the end of it. So it was just a fascinating story, and um, I had read the book and thought the book was just a great book. It was a very um, I, if you divided the book into three sections, the first section was very engaging about how the two lead characters, Ian Montague and Charles Chumley, came together with the 20 committee, which was the double cross committee, which was uh, the um, Churchill's committee that dealt with all kinds of deceptive plans like uh, uh, artificial tanks and, and uh, other things to uh, fool uh the uh, aircraft that would fly over the surveillance aircraft. And, and uh, it was all about a psychological way to win the war. And, and, and the story then goes into the second part, which was a very technical part. It was very forensic. And that was somewhat troublesome. It's kind of hard to get through. But the third part is a terrific and rousing finale. So when I read this book, I thought that how can you possibly make it should be a movie. It had been a movie. But how do you fix the middle of the of the story. Wait a second. I, we don't wait a second before you tell us that. You don't have a, you have to tell the people listening what the movie is about. We don't even movie, know what your movie is about. So this movie is about and and I would think that many people may have heard of a far-fetched tale like this, which is where British intelligence came up with the idea it was necessary to divert the Nazi ground forces into thinking that the Allied invasion of Sicily, which was critical to winning the war in Europe, was not going to happen in Sicily, but was going to happen in Greece, which is much further east. They wanted to go to Sicily because Sicily led to the boot of Italy and to Rome, going to, to actually force Hitler into a corner by going from the south. Later on, the uh, Americans and the British came from the west to France and through D-Day. So the idea was, and it was uh, Lieutenant um, uh, uh, Lieutenant uh, Ian Fleming, the famous author of James Bond, who came up with this idea of finding a suitable corpse and um, fooling the Germans into thinking that this corpse had been drowned. And they created this backstory together with 
paperwork in a uh, shackled briefcase, top secret briefcase to the body, which contained a letter from one general to another explaining that this mission was going to happen in Greece, which it wasn't going to happen. It was fake. It was all fake. The body was fake. The, the plan was fake. Everything was fake. And um, this is the story of how it came to be, how they found the dead body, who the who the man was who had died that became the you know the the corpse that was used in the in this in this subterfuge um and uh okay and this is a case. british this is a british spy movie it's yes. called operation mincemeat and it means we should see it today because things are now happening over in europe which are awful and the timing for this is absolutely perfect absolutely perfect how did you how did you get to do this since you weren't then a producer were you no i had produced frozen river back in 2007 yeah. and 8 so this was now 2010 i had become a uh a film distributor at the time we became the and i think we still are one of the most prolific distributors of french cinema and foreign language cinema as well as documentaries and other things um, but I thought that this would be a great film. And, and as I mentioned earlier, the middle part of the book, the way that I thought we should solve that, the problem was to turn it into a romance, or at least the illusion of a romance. And, and, the, and the film, as, in, as, as reflected from the book, is all about things are not what they appear to be, and relationships are not what they appear to be. And um, there was the reference to corkscrew thinking and and uh, and and how spies, uh, you know, double agents, triple agents, all of that. This is all wound up in a really clever screenplay. And uh, I found a fabulous screenwriter by the name of Michelle Ashford. She was actually the second screenwriter that that tried this. The first one was a young man and the the script just didn't work. It, It just didn't come alive. And Michelle loved the material. And she had, uh, this is her first film that she's done. She has been a very successful um, uh, showrunner for Masters of Sex. She wrote that show together with John Madden, who directed it, who directed Operation Mincemeat. Okay, let me get to Colin Firth. How did you get to Colin Firth? Wasn't he, was, was that the age of the person in real life? No. Ian Montague was late 30s, early 40s, I believe, probably early 40s. He came from a Jewish banking family. Montague is not the name that they were born with. The real name was Samuels. And um, they changed their name to kind of conceal their Jewish identity in, in Great Britain, which is not unusual. And especially during, uh, you know, World War One, World War Two, And um, Colin Firth, and John Madden have had a relationship for a long time. Colin had a small part in, in uh, John's uh, probably most well-known film, which won the Academy Award, Shakespeare in Love. John directed that. He did a masterful job. So he and Colin have, are, I believe, neighbors and have had relationships, uh, have, have had a relationship for many, many years. And um, he was interested in the movie. And because uh, Colin was in his late 50s and this character was in their early 40s, that we had to... Um, find a way to make the relationship with Jean Leslie, who's in her probably late 30s, uh, mid 30s, more palatable and more believable so that it didn't appear to be that this was a 
uh, a man who was, uh, you know, old enough to be a, an uncle, so to speak. Okay. We wanted to make Tell it me now, some of the scenes are really terrific. I mean, the war scenes and the, and the ocean scenes. Tell me how a couple of those scenes were filmed. Those were primarily CGI because we had a very small budget for a movie like this. I think the picture looks like a $50 million movie, and it costs yeah, it in, the lo- in the low 20s. Okay, okay. Well, I don't know how you did all of that. I'm not sure. And you also, you, you, you got a character to portray Churchill. Wasn't that something, a decision that had to be made by everybody, why you would try to bring up Churchill? In well, Churchill, life? Was, Churchill was a very important part of the of the story. Without his approval and and uh, persistence in uh, in uh, the twenty committee pursuing this far fetched plan, it never would have come to pass. And we were fortunate in attracting John to his relationships in theater in London and 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 Great Britain and all the great film work he's done. Is that we attracted Simon Russell Beale who is a very highly respected stage actor, and he's starring now in the Lehman Trilogy in the United States. So we were fortunate in having him. I think he did a marvelous job. Okay, now tell me a little bit, since you have real estate in New York, can you tell me what is going to happen to New York in your view, and when will it come back? It's going to take some time. I think that New York has been through this before, we were fortunate in having Giuliani as mayor uh, years ago. We were fortunate in having Bloomberg. Even before that, we were fortunate in having Ed Koch. And uh, New York has come back in my lifetime at least three times, maybe more. And uh, there are cyclical issues. There are problems that um, need to be solved. We have a perception and a reality of that there is a lot of crime going on, that the subways are not safe. And remember, we're coming out of a pandemic, which is something that we've never known in our lifetimes. The one that happened uh, in 1916 was a long, long time ago. And, uh, you know, thank God we have the medical advances and the science and the technology to be able to develop a vaccine as fast as we did. And um, it was a very difficult time. So, you know, you have that together with the crime, together with now we have inflation, we have all the uncertainty. We have a natural divisiveness that is, you know, we've been living with for the last uh, uh, five or six years. So we have a lot of issues that we've got to deal with. But I think New Yorkers are very resilient. They're very creative. Um, Americans have always been very industrious. Uh, we've always okay, rallied. Tell me about, the, tell, tell me about the, the real estate. People are telling me that they're moving out there. Everybody over the age of 11 is going to Florida. We understand that. But why is the real estate going heavily? Getting an apartment is costing a fortune now. Who is buying in when everyone is going out? Well, everyone is not going out. I think that we saw the flight to Florida. That is a certain person. It wasn't just Florida. It was the suburbs. It was Connecticut. It was, uh, uh, you know, other other places. Uh, remember why people wanted to get away from the pandemic. I mean, that was a large, uh, you know, a, a major factor in relocating to fresh air and sunshine and uh, and, and getting out of a, a you know, a, you know, apartments. Well, okay. people are moving in. People are moving in New York. Remember, until rents just started to spike a few months ago, rents were down 
substantially. New York was perceived as a bargain, but New York still enjoys the reputation throughout the world as the place to be. And as you know, as a longtime New Yorker, that this phrase, when you're leaving New York, you're leaving town, is, is the same now as it's always been. New York, the Big Apple, has always been the place for culture. And remember, culture was shut down. Theaters were closed. Movie theaters were closed. Restaurants were closed. Department stores and retail stores were closed. So there was, you know, when you take all those things away, why would we want to be? New York City lost its soul for a while, and now it's regaining it. That's the way I don't I think there is any other place in the whole world but New York. New York is the capital of this world. Absolutely. And I worry. I worry about it. I know you've got real estate. You and I live near one another, and we see what's happening to the real estate. I'm just worrying about it. That's all. And Don't I'm, worry. I'm just... Don't worry. You've got to look at the long term. You've got to look at the big picture. And um, you stayed. I stayed. Because we love, there's so much about New York we love. And do we have problems? There are problems everywhere. Every city has challenges. Every country has challenges. And, and we see that. But thank God we live in a country where we can voice our opinion, we can vote, we don't have to worry about religious persecution, but we do worry about anti-Semitism, we do worry about racism, and, and, uh, but at least we can have a dialogue. We just have to get on top of crime, and we have to let the police do what they are trained to do, which is to maintain law and order. Without that, and we have we to get have rid of the idiot mayor we have now. We also have to get rid of this idiot mayor now who I only wants to show on TV. That's all he wants. I think you're being precipitous. I think we should give him a chance. It's only been a few months. I think that it's he, enough. Well, he's got it's he, enough. Uh, if we if we don't give him a chance, what choice do we have? We've got, you know, three and a half years to go. It's a long time. Well, we've got to work I think with what he's we awful. have. We got to work with what we have and we've got to educate people and uh New Yorkers are not shy about expressing their opinions. I'm sure he's reading the newspapers. I even saw in the, the post the other day that de Blasio apologized for kind of bungling the yes, last Yes, he did. Yes, months. he did. All of a sudden, we're looking to him as our great angel compared to the guy we've got now. Listen, I love you. I, I want to remind you that I did not stay for dinner last night because I had to get home quickly. I so know, I you understand. owe me dinner. You owe me dinner. Okay, okay, but you got the Buster Keaton movie. I want you to watch that. Yes, I will. Because it has will, the best scenes of all of his movies. And after you've seen that, then we'll, deep, we'll do a deeper dive into Buster Keaton. Thank you, sweetheart. And I'm going away for the weekend, and I'm going to watch Buster Keaton movies. Thank you, sweetie. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. This week was my birthday. It was atop the Freedom Towers One World Observatory. It was born, the observatory, seven years ago. Me, I'm older. My little dinner party, since it was COVID and we couldn't have a lot of party, was a few people on floor 102. It was where Yankees president Randy Levine and his wife Mindy gave a special dinner for me. They were remembering, for some reason, how it all started for me. So I'm going to tell you a little bit. I was set for college at 15. 
But Andrew Jackson High required females to make their own white lawn graduation dress in home economics. I can't sew. After my mother paid a pro to finish it for me, the principal said, She didn't make her own dress. She can't graduate. So, no diploma, no college, no graduating high school. I am living proof that you can't get anywhere without a college education. Years later, I was interviewing Prime Minister Nehru in New Delhi, and also there, accompanying me, was the Library of Congress President, and he inquired about my university. I said, Honey, I never graduated high school. I forget his reply. I remember his look, but I also remember and have since reported that Prime Minister Nehru pinched my behind as he walked in back of me. So what do you need a college education for as long as you have a behind? Years later, outside Vientiane, Laos, I am teaching English along the Mekong Delta. I was trying to teach the kids to parse the phrase exactly on time, as in, I will meet you exactly on time time. So I had one student employ that precise phrase. And how did she do it? She said, I want a dress exactly on time as yours. My teaching career ended quickly. I lived in Asia. I have written articles riding on the back of an elephant. I have washed from a pith helmet in the jungles of Surabaya, and once in trouble before cell phones, computers, or the abilities of the Levines, and needing a telegram sent for immediate help, I asked, would this wire go out immediately? Answered the person minding the wire office, oh yes, it will get sent this very weak. Back here, I then negotiated an apartment when I came back from Asia. The building's board chair then told my broker, because I was then already on the New York Post, the board chair then told my broker, Do you know who is trying to get an apartment here? as if we would let anyone like that gossip person live here. P.S. I moved elsewhere. So what happened to me? I tried modeling. I had 57 beauty titles. How legit? Oh, please. One PR guy named me Miss New Jersey, and I'd never been to New Jersey at that point. Talk about big time. The Brooklyn Better Bagel Bakers Association actually crowned me Miss Bagel, a crown of shellacked bagels on my head. There exists this photo somewhere, which was probably still stuck in cream cheese someplace. My first interview, the Duchess of Windsor, 
not a nice lady. She used to appear at dinners in return for jewelry they would give her from Cartier. When I interviewed her, it was in her Waldorf suite she was visiting, and across their couch lay a giant, huge tiger skin. It belongs to His Highness, she said, that meant the Duke. His Highness, she said, shot it, is partial to it, and it comes along whenever we travel. How about that for a butte? Then came TV, and I did years and years on TV. I was on WNBC's Live at Five. I recall one tight close-up while the contact lens in my right eye spiraled down my cheek. And anchor Sue Simmons, who was on for years and years as the anchor on WNBC's Live at Five, she had Yorkshire Terriers that came from my same breeder, so we were close. Once closeted in a small room, her door shut tight with just her Yorkie. She sat and smoked pot. The tiny four-pound dog fell over. December 79 was my very first New York Post story. I wasn't even on the paper. I didn't even know I was going to be on the paper. I was doing a favor for the paper. My interview was the Shah of Iran. Reporters covered his hospital's sidewalk in those days, desperate for an interview. It was in his final days. He was dying. I alone had the interview, while reporters were desperate to cover the interview with anybody who was carrying a bedpan three floors away. My interview was front page, big headline around the world, New York Post, exclusive interview with the dying Shah. The enormously grateful New York Post payment to me was no money but a handful of stringy, junky, cheapo flowers, like they were soup greens. All I can tell you is that on the 102nd floor of the World Trade Center, which overlooks history, this, for me, who never graduated high school, but only happened in New York, kids, only in New York. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 